If you've got a Bible, go ahead and find Ecclesiastes. Um, if you're trying to figure out where that is, I think the easiest way to find it is just go to the middle, find the Psalms and turn right till you get there. We're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes for about 10 weeks is the game plan. And, and I just want to say from jump, Ecclesiastes is like, Ecclesiastes is like the crazy uncle in the canon of scripture. And what I mean by that is, um, Ecclesiastes is like that uncle that you don't want to sit with at the family reunion. And you don't want to sit with him because he's a little bit drunk. He smells a little weird, smells a little weird. He's prone to telling really long, ranting, depressing stories, right? And, and you just want to eat barbecue. You just want to enjoy some barbecue and play some horseshoes. And here comes crazy uncle, a little tipsy, kind of angry, a bit cynical. And he wants to remind you that you're going to die. Okay. <laughs> That, that's kind of the book of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. And throughout the history of the church, there's been a lot, both Jewish believers and, and then Christian believers, there's been a lot of people that have wanted to like vote Ecclesiastes off the island of canon of scripture. Um, there were rabbis that said that this was the most, the most contradicting book that they had ever read. Um, there were early church fathers that just had no idea how the gospel even fit into this book. Uh, and then there's, there's people current day that just read it and scratch their heads and like, what is that? Uh, I had a great conversation with one of the, one of the agnostic young dudes in our church. And uh, I love that he's here and he's asking questions about faith and he's doing something really brave. He's literally reading through the whole Bible as an agnostic, started at page one, he's gonna read to the end. And a couple of weeks ago, he came up to me and he said, uh, so I'm reading through the whole Bible. Yeah, pretty good, interesting stuff. Uh, Got some questions, Uh, been enjoying it though. And then I got to the book of Ecclesiastes. And, And in his words, he said, what the hell is that about? He, he said, this book is totally, it's totally nihilistic. It's totally hedonistic. It's really depressing. Why is that in the Bible? And I was like, I know, right? It's Ecclesiastes. It's crazy. We're about to take 10 weeks and go through this book of the Bible chapter by chapter and try to figure out what the thing is saying. So as we dive into this book, um, here's what I want you to see. It is pretty dark. It, it does have some moments where you're like, that seems totally heretical. Uh, it does have some moments that you just feel like he's contradicting himself. But at the end of the day, here's what's crazy. Uh, it is part of the canon of scripture, meaning God, the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of this book and it's really beneficial for people. It's beneficial. It's a part of scripture. It's a part of God revealing himself. And one of the ways that God reveals himself is by revealing who we are so that we know that we need God. And what's happening in the book of Ecclesiastes is especially important for modern people. I think that this might just be one of the most profound books of the Bible for this current moment that we've ever walked through as a church. Because I talk to people every single week that are trying to figure out what the heck is the good life that we're supposed to be living. What's meaning? What's substance? What's significance? What's beauty? What's my life about? What should I be banking my life on? Well, Ecclesiastes is about those kinds of questions. And so today what I want to do is I want to introduce this book to you. Uh, I want to take just a couple of minutes, talk about who wrote it, and then I want to talk about what this book really is about. So question one, who wrote it? Um, seems pretty straightforward, but actually it's not real straightforward. Look at Ecclesiastes 1.1. Starts with this, the words of the preacher. Some of your Bibles say teacher. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. 
Okay, historically, most believers have believed that Solomon, David's son, who was really rich and really wise and who really jumped the rails in his faith, uh, historically, most people believe that Solomon wrote this book of the Bible. There are people that don't believe that Solomon wrote this book of the Bible, and, and there's definitely some evidence that he didn't write this book of the Bible. It's possible, but we just don't know for sure. It's also possible that the book of Ecclesiastes was written by some other son of David or some other Jewish king in Israel. And there's another theory that makes a lot of sense, and that's that um, this book was written by a really wise teacher in Israel who sort of took the lessons of the life of Solomon and he captured the lessons of his life for us to dig into. Uh, At the end of the day, I think the thing that we can be really clear on is this this book really smells like Solomon. It kind of tastes like Solomon. It looks like Solomon. So even if Solomon didn't pin it, um, definitely like this is is the big takeaway from the life of Solomon. Now, uh, as we dive into this, what the heck is happening? What the heck is happening? And I wish that I had some like measure of of like ability to get everybody to read a book like this before we sit down to preach through it. That would actually be kind of helpful. This is like Sunday morning book club and like three of us have read the book. Um, so like may, maybe one thing that would be helpful would be to sit down and actually like read the book of Ecclesiastes since we're gonna take 10, week, 10 weeks of our lives and go through this together. But let me give you the nutshell of just why this book feels so crazy. And you find the answer in Ecclesiastes 1 starting in verse 12. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. And I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Okay, here's what's happening. This is really an interesting book because the writer, this preacher or this teacher, he's conducting the most comprehensive, experiential, good life experiment in the history of humanity. This book is a GLE. I just made that term up. It's a GLE. It's a good life experiment in which this writer who has money and position and power and wealth and wisdom, he's trying to figure out where the good life is by experiencing all the things under the sun that people say, hey, the good life's over here or the good life's over there or just seek this or just obtain this. He's basically doing an experiment in his life where he tries all those things. And he doesn't just try all those things like a little bit, like he goes pro at all these different places under the sun that we say that's the meaning of life. He does them bigger and deeper and wider and faster and harder than you've done your pursuit at the good life. 
And what happens in this book is he does this good life experiment is he's gonna give us some of the data from the experiment. He's gonna say, okay, uh, I tried to pursue pleasure as the secret to a good life. And here's how I did that. And here's the lessons that I learned. And then he's gonna talk about, I tried to pursue wisdom as the secret to the good life. And here's what I learned. Um, But before he gets to all the data, he actually lets the cat out of the bag in the very first two verses as to his conclusion from this experiment. And, and it's, pretty, it's pretty bleak stuff. Here's what he says, Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Some of your Bibles translate this meaningless. Meaningless, all is meaningless. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Okay, here's what I want to do. I just want to take a couple of minutes before we spend 10 weeks looking at the data from his experiment. Uh, I want to look at the conclusion of his experiment. And I want to look at three things that are really important if you're going to get anything out of this book for your life. If this book is going to help your soul over the next few weeks, we've got to have an honest look at what he says the conclusion of his good life experiment is. Now, your translation might say meaningless, or it might say vanity, and um, I never want to like bum you out about your English transition, or translation, because your English translation is really, really good, and they've put a lot of work into that, um, but you have to keep in mind, like, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and sometimes some things are really difficult to translate into English, and the word that's translated vanity is one of those words, because... Vanity in our culture, what does that mean? Well, it's kind of like self-love. It's kind of a person that's really into their own appearance or their own clothes. And that doesn't really capture the essence of this word. And meaningless gets closer, but meaningless doesn't necessarily capture the essence of the word because the word that the preacher's using is actually a metaphor. And if you look at metaphors, metaphors can mean a few different things at one time. And that's what makes this really hard to translate. The word that we translate vanity or meaningless is a word in Hebrew called havel, havel. And that word havel literally means smoke or vapor. And it's used throughout this part of the book, the, the Bible. It's used in Ecclesiastes like over 30 times. So this is a big part of the theme that he's trying to get across to us. Now, sometimes havel means like smoke, life is elusive or hard to grasp. Like you can look at smoke and you can smell smoke, but you can't reach out and grab smoke. You can't control smoke. You can't make smoke do what you want it to do. Other times it means more that life is temporary or fleeting, right? Sometimes in the Psalms, the psalmist will write about how human life is like a vapor. It's here and it's gone. Life is short, it's fleeting. Uh, Your youth is short and fleeting. When you get older, you're gonna realize that in your later days, life seems to move faster and faster and faster. And you look back at a life that may even be an 80, 90 uh, 90 years of life. And you're like, dude, that was like a wisp of smoke. It was havel, it was quick, it was fleeting. And sometimes it really does literally mean meaningless. Some of the prophets use the word havel to describe idols that look like they have substance. It's like a God you made and it's made of wood or it's made of gold and it looks like it's got substance, but it's actually havel. It's empty. Can't do anything. Can't hear you. It can't help you. So in this book, one of the big ideas is that he does this good life experiment and he tries all these things under the sun that are supposed to bring you into a life of meaning, depth, beauty, and happiness 
And what he says is, hey, I tried it all, and it's all havel. It's all smoke. In fact, he goes so far as to say in Ecclesiastes 2.17, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity, all is havel, and a striving after the wind. One of the things that this book is about is something that's a lot sadder than being miserable because you don't have all the things that you think would make you happy. There's something more tragic than that. And what's more tragic than that is getting everything that you thought you had to have to be happy and still being miserable. It's one thing to be sad because you know that if you just had the right spouse or a different job or more money or the right house or a better retirement or a healthier body, if you had that, everything would be great. Like that's a kind of sadness, but there's a kind of depressing sadness that comes when you get all that stuff and you're like, man, like, I'm still empty. It's, this is havel. That's what happens to this guy. In some, guy, in some ways, this preacher is kind of like the celebrities that we love to hate right? And and we love to hate them because they seem to have everything and they're just so bummed out about their lives. It's like, hey, um, did you check yourself into rehab because you're addicted to Oxycontin because because, like you're super famous and you're swimming like Scrooge McDuck through your piles of money? Is that what made you sad? Or are you super sad because like you've got a six pack and you can travel the world? Um, Are you really sad because you date a lot of really hot women? Is that what's making you super sad? And we look at their lives and we're like, hey, if I had what you had, I would be so happy. If everybody loved every single stupid thing that comes out of my mouth, that they would retweet my ridiculous nonsense and think that I was great and dote on me and see my stupid movies and pay for me to have multiple houses and travel the world and eat whatever I want and be able to have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. If I had that life, it would be pretty awesome. Why are you bummed out? Well, the preacher's kind of like that. Like he gets everything that you think you would be totally fulfilled in having, but he's also a little bit different than that. He's also a little bit more aware than most people are. He's a little bit more sober about what life really means. He's a little bit more reflective. In fact, he does something really brave. He's able to name the emptiness in his soul. Philosopher William Barrett says this, It's better to encounter one's own existence in despair than to never encounter it at all. Uh, Or to use the great Shakespearean bard of current times, Kenny Chesney. (laughs) Somebody in the room is like, finally, Martha, Kenny Chesney. I knew if I just held on long enough, this church would get around to being relevant. Here we go. Kenny, Kenny flipping Chesney. I'm so sad. I'm going to read this, but I'm going to read it. Here's what Kenny Chesney says. (laughs) It's terrible. We don't know what we want, but we want it. And we want it all right now. We're too young and too, we're too old. We're all lost on the yellow brick road. We climb the ladder, but the ladder just grows. We're born, we work, we die. It's spiritual. Thanks, Kitty. (laughs) Enough is never enough. American dream never wakes up. Too much is never too much. We won't be happy till we're rich and miserable. Yeah, okay. 
That's kind of seems to be what's playing out in the celebrity world. That seems to be what plays out in the preacher's life. But the preacher's able to actually stand in the vacuum and name it and say, hey, it's not just because I lack the right technique to find a deep life. There's something, there's something missing that's way more profound than that. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes this. Most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips or so on. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There's always something we grasp at in the first moment of longing that just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It turned out to be a good job, but it has evaded us. Havel. It's like smoke. You can't Get it to stick. So he says at the beginning that the thesis of his experiment, the conclusion of his experiment is Havel of Havels. Everything is Havel. Now, he then says something that we got to camp out on. What does man gain by all his toil? And, And at first read, you can think that this is just sort of a treatise on the fact that work sucks. It's actually not about work sucking. Um, when he uses this term toil here, he's not just talking about your job. He's talking about all of our effort and labor under the sun to try to carve out a life of meaning. Everything we point our hopes at, everything we try to find our purpose or meaning in, everything we look at and say, ah, there's the good life. If I can just get that. He says it's all havel. Like smoke you can see but can't grab, all of our pursuits at finding the good life end up empty. And what's going to happen over the next 10 weeks as we walk through this book, you're going to see that there's five big, there's five big areas of toil that turn out to be havel for the preacher. Here's five of the big ones. The first is wisdom. He pursues wisdom like crazy, and that's both intellectual and spiritual wisdom. Like he becomes the wisest man on the face of the planet. He gets wisdom and he says it's havel. He pursues pleasure. Next week when we come back, we're going to talk about pleasure pursuing. And uh, it's, it's crazy, man. This guy literally trains like an athlete to enjoy pleasure. Right? He makes your hedonism look like you're a Girl Scout. He, he gets after pursuits of pleasure with a gusto, and he gets to the end of all that pursuit of pleasure. It's Havel. He then pursues wealth and honor, and he is incredibly wealthy. If this is about Solomon or written by Solomon, uh, probably the wealthiest guy of his day, storehouses of money, uh, banging house, like Solomon's house. Um, It's funny, Solomon spent seven years building God's temple. He spent 14 years building his house. Uh, That kind of gives you an idea of what his house was like. He's wealthy, he's prosperous, he's successful, and it's all Havel. And then, for those of you that are like, well, that's just because he doesn't know how to really focus on the good stuff, um, he also pursues duty, he pursues honor, and social service. He's going to make the world a better place. He's going to live a life of honor. He's going to give back to the community. He gets to the end of all that, and he calls it Havel. And then he even pursues piety, piety and religion, 
and he calls it Havel. Now, in Ecclesiastes, there's some reasons that keep coming up again and again as to why all of our toil under the sun turns into being vanity and meaningless. And three of the big reasons that keep popping up are time, death, and chance. Time, death, and chance. Let, let me show you this in Ecclesiastes 1, 4 through the end. It says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come, even among those who come after. (laughs) Super bored with life, super depressing. Here's what he's saying. One of the reasons that all of your toiling to try to find the good life under the sun doesn't work out is that time gets the last word on whatever you build. Here's how Thomas Nagel put it in his book, What Does It All Mean? Nagel writes, Even if you produce a great work of literature, which continues to be read thousands of years from now, eventually the solar system will cool or the universe will wind down and collapse and all trace of your effort will vanish. The problem is that although there are justifications for most big things and small things we do within life, none of these explanations explain the point of your life as a whole. It wouldn't matter if you had ever existed After you had gone out of existence, it won't matter that you did exist. Uh, Those are some conclusions that if you just look at what's under the sun and take an honest assessment of, of time, feel pretty darn logical. Time says, you're small, I'm big, I win. Time says, whatever you build, your family, your business, art, architecture, Culture, civilization, scientific learnings, whatever you build, it's all a sandcastle at low tide. I get the last word. Time says whatever you love will be erased. Time says all of these things with completely impersonal indifference. Time says these things, but time doesn't really say these things because time doesn't give a rip about you. And now we get to read Pink Floyd. So you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. Havel, what are you going to build? What's going to make your life significant? Ultimately, in the scope of time, if mountains are going to get erased eventually by the winds, guess what? Whatever your little human endeavor is, it's going away. What's the point? Second reason that our toil seems to be meaningless under the sun is death. 
And uh, we're going to talk a lot about death. So this is a death warning. Like we're actually going to have some frank conversations about death for the next 10 weeks. We're going to have to, if we're going to read this book of the Bible, because death is one of the great obstacles to finding a life of meaning under the sun. Here's what Ecclesiastes 3.18 says. I have said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to a beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place and all are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Pretty bleak. Here's what he's saying. If at the end of the day, if death as the great equalizer takes the wise and takes the foolish, takes the rich, takes the poor, if death lays waste to all of us and we get put in the ground and turn back into dust and fertilize plants and animals get put back in the ground and turn to dust and fertilize plants, like does love even really matter because eventually love dies? Does learning really matter because eventually learning is forgotten in the grave? Does art really matter? Does beauty really matter? Does pleasure really matter? Like if death is the great tyrant that's coming for all of us, who cares? Who cares what you're building? Death makes life hevel. And then thirdly, um, the third obstacle that keeps popping up in Ecclesiastes as to why it's really difficult to find a life of meaning under the sun is life feels random. In fact, um, I'm not comfortable saying it, but uh, the preacher, he's going to use the word chance. Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11. And I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to all of them. For the man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so are the children of man ensnared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Um, Thanks for coming. Tip your waitresses. Enjoy brunch. Right? (laughs) What's he saying? Well, here's what he's saying. Um, Yeah, man, really work hard at your career, but uh, sometimes the slacker is the one that gets promoted. Yeah, really try to be a good parent, but that doesn't mean that your kid's not going to grow up to hate your guts. Right? Now, here's what's crazy. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a part of wisdom literature in the Bible, as is Proverbs. And when we preached through the book of Proverbs last year, it was really fun. Uh, And here's what you found in Proverbs. Proverbs are like short sayings that are generally true. Short sayings that are generally true. Like Proverbs teaches, train up a child in the way that he shall go. Like Proverbs is super shiny and happy. Proverbs, train up a child in the way that he shall go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs says, honor the Lord with your wealth. Give, be generous, tithe, sow seeds. And with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And then Ecclesiastes comes along. He's like, yeah, Ecclesiastes, train up your children in the way that they shall go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it, except for those that do. Seriously, Ecclesiastes is like, yeah, honor the Lord with the first fruits of your wealth and your barns will overflow unless you're completely wiped out and destitute as a righteous person that has nothing in the bank. See, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is giving you 
the exceptions to the rule in a broken world. Ecclesiastes is helping you feel like it doesn't always work out the way it should. Sometimes you tell the truth and you get fired. Sometimes you live a virtuous life and you get killed. Sometimes evil people prosper and good people suffer. Like think about it with just food and exercise and diet. Um, Doesn't this play out? Eat all the wheatgrass that you want. Do all the yoga you want. You're still going to die. You're still going to die. It's not fair. It feels like chance gets the last word. Like what's the point of anything if it's all random? Now, thirdly, Ecclesiastes is about the hevel under the sun. He says in verse two, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity, all is vanity. What does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? And now friends, we get a little bit of sunshine. We, we get a little bit of a, a breath of fresh air because uh, at the end of the day, the book of Ecclesiastes is not included in scripture as a manual for how to become an atheist. Ecclesiastes is not included in scripture as a manual for how to become a nihilist. It's not in scripture as a manual for how to become a burned out, really depressed hedonist. Ecclesiastes is in scripture because it's giving us a clue. It's giving us a clue as to what happens when we try to find ultimate meaning in things that are created under the sun. We say, is this all there is? Because if so, it's meaningless. If, this, if there isn't something beyond the sun that can give a more permanent meaning, if there isn't something that can deal with the onward march of time that gobbles up everything, it's all meaningless. If there isn't something from beyond the sun that finally gets the last word over the tyrant death, it's all meaningless. If there's not something from beyond the sun that actually is orchestrating the world in such a way where things are not just random chance, but actually there's design and there's goodness and there's grace flowing. If there's not something from beyond the sun, there is no point in anything. In fact, here's what I want you to see. What Ecclesiastes does so courageously and beautifully is it frames it frames the question that the rest of the Bible answers. Peter Kreeft is a philosopher. I think he was at Boston University. And man, he wrote a beautiful book about Ecclesiastes. I think he nails it. He writes this, whatever rabbis first decided to include Ecclesiastes in the canon of sacred scripture were both wise and courageous. Wise because we appreciate a thing only by contrast. And Ecclesiastes is the contrast, the alternative to the rest of the Bible. The question to which the rest of the Bible is the answer. There's nothing more meaningless than an answer without its question. That is why we need Ecclesiastes. The rabbis were also courageous because the question Ecclesiastes raises is so deep that only an answer that is deeper still can satisfy the mind and the heart that dare ask it. And if such an answer is not forthcoming, we must either run from the question in a dishonest cover-up or run from life in despair. These are the two running stores that plague the modern world. What does it feel like when you ask the deepest questions of meaning and you can't have an answer to them or can't find a way to meet them? Here's what it feels like. University of Chicago professor Jerry Coyne writes this. Cosmology doesn't give one iota of evidence for purpose. 
or for God. Secularists see a universe without apparent purpose and realize that we must forge our own purposes and ethics. But although the universe is purposeless, our lives aren't. We make our own purpose and they're real. Do you feel that? He's up against the bleakness of a universe that can't be explained alone by science. And he's saying, hey, the universe is meaningless. But your life has meaning and it's up to you to figure out what that is. This is the cover up. Because if he stands in that moment and just admits, oh yeah, it's all meaningless and I don't have an answer to the meaningless of life. How do you go on like that? So in our weird, expressive, individualistic age, we all say, okay, uh, yeah, man, it seems like everything's meaningless. There's no purpose. God is dead um, or everything's God and therefore everything's up for grabs. So here's what you got to do, man. Just boldly and bravely take it upon yourself to decide what the purpose of your life is. (laughs) And then we wonder why we're like the most depressed, anxious, medicated people in the history of the world. We are freaking out. And we're freaking out because we haven't had the guts to ask the first question and we haven't received the great, amazing answer that the rest of scripture gives us. What is the end of man? Why are you here? Why are you alive? Again, C.S. Lewis here is really helpful. C.S. Lewis used this metaphor to explain how we should think about philosophy. And the metaphor is the metaphor of a fleet of ships. So if you think of humanity as a fleet of ships and we're all out in the ocean together, there's three questions that that fleet has to ask if it's going to be a successful journey. Question one, how do we keep from crashing into each other? It's a good question, right? That's social ethics. How should we treat each other? What should we do in our relationships with each other? Now, ancient man asks that question all the time. Modern man loves that question. So we want to talk about tolerance and relationship and society and community, but that's not the only question. The second question is, how do we keep from taking on water? (laughs) We're vessels in the ocean. We're springing leaks. How do you deal with those leaks so you don't sink and drown in the depths of the sea? That's the question of individual ethics. That's where we have to talk about virtue. We have to talk about vices and we have to talk about character. Uh, Ancient man asked that question. We don't like to talk about that one as much in our modern day. And then there's a third question the ancient man asked that we are terrified of asking. And that question is, what is the purpose of the armada? Why is the fleet here? What's the mission? Where are we going and who sent us? Who owns the fleet? And that question, that is the one that Ecclesiastes is wrestling with primarily. Modern man asks the first question, sometimes asks the second, and is terrified of the third because we don't have an answer to it. What's the point of your life? And again, can we just be honest? Like, I I get, man, it sounds really great to say, hey, you just got to find your own meaning and create your own meaning. But if we could just be sober enough to admit it, the answer is crushing our souls. We can't do it. And like this preacher and his good life experiment like not as, not as elegantly and not as drastically, but we're also doing the good life experiment. We're trying to toil under the sun to find meaning, to find purpose, to find happiness. And we keep getting frustrated and we keep feeling like, yeah, man, it is like Havel. It is elusive. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Listen to these words. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that it was made for another world. All the toil under the sun is havel. And yet the desire for transcendence, for meaning, for death not to be the last word, for chance not to be the ultimate reality, for time to not get to lay waste to everything you've loved and everything that you've built. Like those longings are in you and there doesn't seem to be any answer to those desires under the sun. And so Ecclesiastes drives us to ask a really profound question. Is there anything beyond the sun that can meet us here? And this is why Ecclesiastes is a lesson that leads us to Jesus. Because Jesus, the son of God, came from beyond the sun. Jesus, the son of God, entered into life under the sun. Jesus bore the curse of futility of our toiling. He bore the curse of it. Jesus, the creator, the eternal one, took on flesh and entered time. As a human, felt his body age. Jesus stepped into the domain of death, tasted it. Jesus did all that. He did all of that as the one from beyond the sun that came under the sun to redeem and rescue those who under the sun are walking around for meaning and finding out that everything's like vapor. Jesus did that to rescue and redeem humanity. And here's what's going to be really fun in the next 10 weeks, I think. What you're going to find is because Jesus intervened from beyond the sun in this world, there's hope. There's hope that the things under the sun can actually be enjoyed again and used again once you find that ultimately that's not the source of your life. If your love for the living God gets ordered rightly, St. Augustine said your other loves are going to fall into line. The problem is you love some things way more than what you should, like food and sex and money and family. And you love other things way less than what you should, like the living God that created you for his glory, who is the source of identity and meaning and deepest joy. And my hope is as we walk through the series, what's going to begin to happen is the living God is going to start to order our loves more purely where we can love God for who he is. It's ultimate meaning, it's ultimate reality. And then what happens is you actually get to learn to enjoy work instead of asking work to be your savior. You learn to get to enjoy art instead of asking art to fulfill you. You learn to get to enjoy what it means to be a man or a woman um, without your, your desires and your drives shaping the whole course of your life. Jesus came from beyond the sun to rescue and redeem people who are living futile, vain lives of havel under the sun.